Well, um, we've been walking through 2 Corinthians since the fall, and uh, we're in the last passage of 2 Corinthians 3, and um, so I'm going to read that, and then we're going to uh, look at one theme in that passage. The sermon today is entitled, The Veiled and the Unveiled. 2 Corinthians 3, beginning in verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord. Who is the Spirit? So here Paul talks about when Moses came down from Mount Sinai and his face was glowing with the glory of God. And because of this, the people were disturbed. They didn't want to look at the glory of God. It was very intimidating, very scary to them. And so to accommodate them, Moses covered his face with a veil. And Paul uses this story to make a point. Just as a veil existed in the days of Moses between the glory of God, which was on the face of Moses at that time, and the eyes of the Israelites, so a veil still remains, he says, between the Jews and the glory of God in his day. They still don't see it. They're still blind to it. They still don't get it. For to this day, he says, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. That's verse 14 and 15. Now, in a few weeks, we're going to talk about the Israelites, the people of Israel, and what God has done with them through history and what he has in store for them in the future. But today... I'm going to focus on the, the spiritual truth, the theological truth that's really behind, one of them, that's behind what Paul is talking about here. This idea that there is a veil over the hearts of men, preventing them from seeing the glory of God. And even though Paul uses eyesight language here, he is clearly not talking about actual visual uh, impairment. He's talking about spiritual blindness. He makes that, that's clear. I mean, even if these two passages weren't in this passage, it'd be clear. But there are two places where he, he makes that explicitly clear. One is in verse 14 when he says about the Jews, their minds were hardened. 
and it, in parallel with them being blind or being, being veiled. Their minds were hardened. So it's obviously an internal blindness. And then in verse 15, the, the veil, he talks about lies over their hearts. It's not just over their eyes, it's over their hearts, this veil. Okay, so the theological truth that's behind this is that because of sin, we are blind to God's glory. And our hearts are hardened towards him. Just like the Israelites, the glory is there to see. We just don't want to have anything to do with it. So as, as we're told, in, as Jesus talked about in Matthew 13, 15, we close our eyes to it. So we're blind in that sense. And of course, like the Ray Stevens song said, there is no uh, one more blind than he who will not see. And so even the eyes and hearts of the Israelites in the days of Moses were veiled from seeing his glory. They didn't want to see it and therefore they closed their eyes and they were blind to it. Instead of being drawn to his glory when Moses came down, they were repelled by his glory. Much as many today fear nothing more than the face of God and will do anything to avoid it, even to avoid talking about it or being made to think about it. But even now in the New Testament area, the era in which we live, there is a veil that blinds the eyes of unbelievers to the glory of Christ. In a few verses into chapter 4, Paul makes this more explicit. He says, our gospel is veiled to those who are perishing in whose case the God of his, this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. That's uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. Sin is spoken here in the language of veiledness and the language of blindness which is one of the images that the Bible commonly uses to describe man's unwillingness to see God and his inability, moral inability, to see and grasp the beauty and the glory of God. God, therefore, is hidden from those who love darkness rather than light, as Jesus said in John 3.19, actually. We're not sure exactly who those words are, uh, belong to, but it may be Jesus, it may be John. The glory of God now, more than anywhere else, resides in the face of Jesus. But a veil of sin obscures that glory so it is not seen. This is why people don't get Christ. Though he is wonderful, though he is gracious, they don't get him and they're repelled by him. It's why people think that we are crazy when we talk about Christ and worship him and devote our lives to him. This is why the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. It's because we see something that others are unable to see or unwilling to see. 
Now, I'm not saying they don't see anything. But as Isaiah 6, 9 says, they keep on hearing, but do not understand. They keep on seeing, but do not perceive. They don't get it. And of course, the blind are blind to their blindness. The good news is that the blindness of the of our or the veiledness of sin is not the end of the story. The Lord who is the Spirit is in the business of veil removal. In the Lord Jesus the veil can now be removed and enable us to behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. When he was on earth one of the most common miracles Jesus did was empowering blind people to see. And Jesus didn't do this to fix the vision of a few Middle Easterners in the first century. He did this as an object lesson to show us that he came to open the eyes of those who are blind spiritually. When Jesus began his ministry, remember that moment when he, after his temptation, he went into the, tab, into, the, uh, into the synagogue and he read the words of Isaiah 61 to basically announce his ministry beginning and explain who he was. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's Luke 4, 18 and following. Well, Jesus didn't come to cure the vision problems of the world. That's not the point here. He came to open the eyes of mankind who have been, since the fall of Adam into sin, have been spiritually blind. And that's the worst kind of blindness there is. Find me a blind believer, a, a person who's physically blind and yet a believer in Christ, and ask him if he'd be willing to switch his blindnesses. And if you find one who is willing to switch, he's not a true believer. You know, trade his physical blindness for spiritual blindness. Remember when Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus and was blinded for three days? And then just as he was going to be baptized, scales fell from his eyes and he could see again. Remember? What was the point? Well, this symbolized something which was going on inside of Paul. He was being enabled to see. He'd been blind up to that point. He had scales in his eyes. And that's the point. This is the work that God does, the gracious, powerful work that God does now for his people in Christ is to open their eyes to see his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. It's common to think of Christianity as one religion among many. And even many so-called Christians think that way. They just think that Christianity is the best religion. 
or perhaps the one they agree with most. But true Christianity isn't one religion among many. True Christianity is a people in whom God has worked a miracle. True Christianity is a people who've seen something that no one else can see. And not just a miracle like when Jesus healed blind Bartimaeus. Remember that wonderful story in Jericho where he healed the blind man who was calling out to him on the side of the road? Well, Jesus, it was a wonderful story and very touching and precious and one of my favorites. But the eyes of Bartimaeus didn't work, aren't working anymore. Those physical eyes, they stopped working when he died, at least. That only lasted a few years. But the miracle of removing the veil that makes us, that blinds us to Christ, that miracle is an eternal miracle. It doesn't just help us a little bit, it gives us eternal life. Deciding that Christianity is superior to other religions doesn't make you a Christian. Aligning your belief system to the Christian faith doesn't make you a Christian. Becoming part of a Christian church doesn't make you a Christian. A supernatural work of divine power to open your eyes makes you a Christian. A miracle of opening the eyes and changing the heart that is performed only by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what makes a person a Christian. And Paul here in this passage says that only God can remove the veil which blinds those who wander in darkness, in the darkness of unbelief. Verse 14, only through Christ is it taken away. And 16, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Before the Holy Spirit gave me eyes to see, I was blind. I was so sure that there was no God. But after the veil was removed, there was nothing in the world I was more sure of than that there was a God. I could see. He had shown himself to me. Now I could see, and, I, and everything changed. I could look out in the world and see the whole earth was full of his glory. But I'd never seen it until my eyes were open to him. It always reminded me of that song in The Music Man. There were bells on the hill, but I never heard them ringing. No, I never heard them at all till there was you. There were birds in the sky, but I never saw them winging. No, I never saw them at all till there was you. And there was music, and there were wonderful roses, they tell me, and sweet, fragrant meadows of dawn and dew. There was love all around, but I never heard it singing. No, I never heard it at all till there was you. And I know that that's a love song in the story, but... But for me, it was a spiritual love song. For me, it was like, wow, the whole earth is full of his glory. Once I saw him, once the blinders were taken away. And how blessed are my eyes that I can see the reality of the blessed and beautiful Son of God.
What a precious gift that I didn't deserve and I didn't achieve. God just gave it to me. And I know the same is true for many. We need to ask ourselves, has our veil been removed? Have we seen what a glorious Savior there is for sinners? Has our heart been made open to Him? Have we yielded our life to Him? Has He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we can have redemption and the forgiveness of sins? If the answer is yes, then join me in praising our Heavenly Father for opening our eyes to the glory of His Son. For we're not the ones who did it. You know, it's very easy for us to get into this idea that once something is true about me for a long enough time, I start thinking that it's me instead of recognizing it's a gift that God gave me. But this is not me. This is something God did. Something God gave me. Then we have to ask ourselves, what about this world that we live in? We live in a world of blinded, veiled people who don't see the reality of Christ. You know, so how do we live in this world? And this, if I believe, it's my opinion, that the Bible indicates that we'll always be a minority. That the road is narrow and only few are they that find it. And so we'll always live in this world which is dominated by blind, veiled people. Now if a person born completely blind tried to persuade you that there is no such thing as light. Why would we be intimidated by their arguments? We don't need to be intimidated by the world. They're blind. They can't see. We feel sorry for them. We understand why they don't see, why they don't believe. But we don't, aren't swayed by their unbelief. It doesn't make us think, oh, maybe there really isn't anything. If we see God, they're blind. But then if everybody's blind, how do you convince someone of something that they can't see? Well, you can't. So why try? Well, we try because God tells us in his word that he will do the necessary miracle accompanying the gospel in the hearts of many who are loved and communicated to about the truth of Christ. But... In light of this, it does seem, it does show how silly it is that we try to convince people to, to come to Christ without prayer. As if it's all about our eloquence or our persuasiveness. As if we can do it without the Lord's miraculous intervention. 
And it also shows us how silly it is to parent without prayer. To rely on our parenting skills or our diligence or our love for our children in order to succeed. Instead of realizing it takes a divine miracle in the hearts of our children in order for us to, have the, to obtain the goal that we strive for as parents, assuming that our goal is to have children who know Christ. The same thing in ministry. How silly it is to be involved in ministry without accompanying our efforts with prayer. As if my talents and my ability to do things is somehow going to do the trick. When it's really God who does the trick and God who opens the eyes. And that brings us to our last point. What if you're not sure whether your eyes have been opened or not? Or what if it maybe seems to you sometimes that they're, they're not opened? Or what if sometimes they seem opened and sometimes they don't seem opened? Well, if your eyes haven't been opened, probably you wouldn't care. You don't know that your eyes haven't been opened if they haven't been opened. So you wouldn't care. So if you care, if you really want your eyes to be opened, that's a good sign. The fact is that none of us have our eyes completely opened. None of us see completely clearly. Now there is a time coming when we will see clearly. When the Lord returns, we're told, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. We will see clearly on the last day when the Lord returns in his magnificent glory. All men will see clearly. But really, there's a, right now, there's a spectrum. You know, the, the image of a veil. When you have a veil, it doesn't necessarily completely block all of your vision. It obscures your vision. You can't see as well. But it doesn't necessarily mean that they can't see anything. And so it is that we live in an in a, in a existence right now where even though we see... We don't see completely, and we need to grow in being able to see. And that means that we need to seek to see. I don't mean that you can't see until you seek. I mean that we need to seek to see better than we do now. Because we're still blind to some extent. Sometimes we lose sight of the fact that we have such a wonderful Savior who loved us so much and gave himself to us. We need continuously to have the veil of spiritual blindness removed that we might behold him and be transformed by his glory. But we're sinners and we're prone to wander from the God we love. In our flesh, we still don't want to see his glory. You realize that? There's a part of you that doesn't want to see God. 
is a part of you that prefers sin over your Savior. That's why, you know, the New Testament keeps telling us, put, you know, flee from that and put that to death and cultivate your love for the Lord and your and strive to to cry out to the Lord to be able to uh, open your eyes. This is why Paul prays in Ephesians 1, that famous prayer where he asks that the eyes of the people's hearts may be enlightened. Exact same thing here. Open their eyes that they might be able to see how great is their hope and how great is the power of God at work within them. And how great is the inheritance that is theirs in Christ. We need to see the Lord's glory much better than we do. And that's why we read the word. And that's why we listen to his word being read, being taught, being proclaimed. That's why we worship God and use great words of great hymns that point us to the Lord. And that's ultimately why we cry out to the Lord to Open our eyes. Paul was praying for those who were already believers. And yet they needed their eyes opened more. And that means it's a process. We're going to talk about this in a few weeks when we get to verse 18. It's a process. You know, in Mark Chapter 8, there's an interesting story, strange story about Jesus healing a blind man. He took a blind man by the hand and he spit in the man's eyes. And he laid his hands on him and he asked the man, do you see anything? And the man looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and he opened his eyes and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. You see, sometimes it doesn't happen all at once. We need subsequent openings of the eyes. God, in my life, he keeps opening my eyes more and more. As my life goes on. And I pray it continues. I read once a precious story about a grandfather. Who was walking with his grandson. And his young grandson asked him. Granddad. Can you see God? And the grandfather answered. Son. It's getting so that I don't see anything else. Wow. I said that's what I want. I pray that by the end of my life, I'll be able to say things like that. How about you? Do you long to see the glory of the Lord in your life? Do you pray to be able to have eyes that are opened? That God would deal with all the obstacles and all the scales and all the gunk and all the build up over the years and all the messed up things from your childhood and clean it out so that you can see his glory more brightly than you do now you certainly can't expect that you're going to be able to guide and lead others if you can't see very well yourself 
Remember what Jesus said, if a blind man leads a blind man, they'll both fall into the pit. Oh, may God give us all a hunger to see his glory. That was how this whole thing started, you know. This story of Moses when uh, he went up on the mountain and he, and he came down. That started because G- Moses came to God and asked, show me your glory. And we need to pray that prayer. Lord, show me your glory. You know, there is a... We talk about contentment. And usually we think of contentment as a good thing. But you know, there's an unholy contentment. To be content, seeing God only as you presently see Him, that's not a good contentment. God wants us to have an ambition to see Him more. To have to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus. To have our eyes more open to the greatness of his hope and the greatness of his power and the greatness of our inheritance in Christ. I pray that each one of us will hunger for that and strive for that and cry out to the Lord to grant it because he's the only one that can do it. Now let us come to the table of the Lord. thing that ultimately makes us one this motley group that we call the the people of God or the church of Jesus it's not that we speak the same language it's not that we're the same age it's not that we are in the same country it's because we have become the children of God by his miracle in us Opening our eyes and causing us to be born again and taking our heart of stone and giving us a heart of flesh and knitting us together as a family. And guess what? When you're born, you don't choose your parents and you don't choose your brothers and sisters either. And when you come into the body of Christ, you don't choose your brothers and sisters. God says, this one I want and that one I want and this one. And he knits us together. And it's because of Christ that we become one. And it's, we're called to God, and when we're called to God, it means we're also called to each other. And so it, this sacrament is a time to commune with God, but it's to commune with God together, not just individually. We don't have quiet times and take communion in our quiet times. We take communion together as a body because it's both horizontal and vertical. Let us pray. Thank you, O Father, for the precious sight of the beautiful Savior that you enable us to see. And dear Lord, if you had left us to ourselves, we'd be just like the world. We'd be ranting at you. We'd be mocking the very thought of you. 
But dear Lord, we are here and we are seeking you only because of your gracious work in our hearts. And we want you to receive the glory for this, O Lord. And we thank you now for the chance, for the invitation, for the calling to come to you and partake of your Son, our Savior. We pray, Lord, that you would meet us here as we come together as one body in Christ and we join with all others around the globe, dear Lord, who seek you at your table. And we thank you that you have made us one and we thank you that because of Christ we are one family, brothers and sisters of one another. And we pray, Lord, that you would knit us together even as you knit us to yourself. This is our prayer and we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.